Welcome to part one of this podcast episode titled 20 Years of Patient Safety, where we are drawing on the content from the June 2022 print edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. The June 2022 edition was a very special anniversary edition for us. It was an extended edition showcasing a collection of expert commentaries about patient safety, where we featured some of the most remarkable experts from the fields of medicine, law, ethics, and clinical governance. They all have in common a strong commitment to improving patient safety with extensive careers that have seen many challenges and changes take place in this incredibly complex area of work, and they have very generously shared their insights with us. In part one of this three-part podcast episode, we are introduced to the Anthology of Patient Safety Expert Commentaries, and we hear the editorial titled, 20 Years of Quality in Healthcare and Patient Safety, Reflections on the Past, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, and Directions for the Future, with three fascinating stories of individuals who embody safety successes through hard work, vision, and a commitment to quality and safety people that I described as the mountaineers of patient safety. These features are followed by the first two of our expert commentaries, Come So Far But Still So Far To Go by Dr. Annie Molden, and Ensuring We Don't Fall Short on Safety, Reflections of a Health Service Researcher and Clinician by Associate Professor Caroline Brand. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate part one of this three-part episode. An anthology of patient safety expert commentaries from Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to the June 2022 edition of the Clinical Communique, a milestone moment for us that marks 20 years of work on this publication. In our inaugural edition, we told our readers that our primary aim is to improve the awareness of clinicians and those in positions of governance about adverse events resulting from systems failures, and then to apply these lessons to their own institutions. Two decades and 50 editions later, we are proud to have stayed true to this course. Our name evolved from the coronial communique to the clinical communique. Our designs modernised and we became ever busier in our professional lives, but at the heart of it, we all remain a small team who firmly believe that the process of sharing insights from coroner's cases is both a powerful tool in improving patient safety and a responsibility that we have the privilege of holding. Much has changed in healthcare since we started, not least the immediacy of data. Where once clinical practice improvements were thought to take a decade to filter through and integrate into systems, now a significant advance can make sweeping changes overnight thanks to the power of the internet. However, the sheer scale of the available information can be overwhelming, and it is important not to get lost in big data or paralysed by the multitude of voices presenting opinion over expertise. There's still a role for the oldest form of information transfer, that of narrative. That's why the clinical communique continues to tell stories with a human focus and highlight the available expertise to speak on behalf of those who are no longer here and to ensure that their passing helps those in the future. To honour this 20-year anniversary of the clinical communique, we have collated a remarkable collection of commentaries from experts in the fields of medicine, law, ethics and clinical governance. Individuals who have contributed immensely to improvement work on patient safety over the past 20 years and who have been integral in shaping the landscape of quality and safety in healthcare. We invited each of these renowned experts to share their insights on 20 years of quality in healthcare and patient safety, reflections on the past, 
lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic and directions for the future, and we were delighted by their responses. In the last 20 years, the scope of patient safety has expanded from individual activism by early adopters to an acknowledgement that safety principles should be embedded within every health system. General concepts of error and human factors have sharpened focus into sophisticated subspecialty areas of problem identification and system improvement. The experts here have done more than most to define the topography of this new space, and we are fortunate to have them guide us up their very own mountains in this special edition of the Clinical Communique. From Annie Molden's recollection of the seminal publications in the 90s on medical errors and Carolyn Brand's reflections on her career path from clinical practice to quality improvement and hospital governance, to Ron Patterson's moving account of his experiences of patient safety as both a commissioner and a family member witnessing the devastating effects of the pandemic on the aged care system. Nicholas Tully and Angela McGarry use a global health lens to identify lessons from COVID-19, while Harriet Graham's humanising description of the vagaries of a virtual courtroom and Ian Freckleton's examination of COVID-19-related inquests demonstrate that there is a lot of work being done and a lot to be learned from our recent collective experiences of the pandemic. The role of regulation and standards in improving patient safety is explored by Martin Fletcher and Paul Shinkfield, who look ahead to a regulatory scheme that encompasses cultural safety, clinical governance, and a more holistic view of risk, and by Michael Dooley, who juxtaposes another 20-year anniversary, that of Australia's national strategy for quality use of medicines, and is encouraged by the growing momentum in medication safety standards. Our collection is rounded off with an inspirational set of observations by John Banja, who succinctly frames a few key concepts weaving through the past, present and future of patient safety. When I first read their commentaries, I was struck by just how steadfast these experts have been in using their diverse professional backgrounds to forge a common path in the patient safety movement. They each describe the challenges, lessons and their hopes with the clarity and wisdom of a person who has experienced the many highs and lows of initiating change in a seemingly immutable healthcare system. I have now read their commentaries many times over taking away more to reflect on and learn from each time. I feel truly indebted to this group of forethinkers and go-getters for their contributions to this edition and for what they have achieved in improving quality and patient safety in healthcare. Editorial from Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham. 20 years of quality in healthcare and patient safety. Reflections on the past, lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic, and directions for the future. Over the years, I've spent many hours reading coroner's findings. Too many to count. Reading the narratives around a tragic loss of life and imagining the individuals involved. Patients, families and clinicians incontrovertibly affected by gaps and failures in the healthcare systems that existed around them. I've reflected on the individuals who write for our editions about these systemic failures. The case summary and expert commentary authors who somehow find the time in their hard-working schedules to examine and share important lessons in the hope that it will prevent further harm. The irony about examining systems, however, is that there are a very few mechanisms in place to address the problems identified and create the solutions. 
We look to organisations and governments to implement changes that will improve the delivery of healthcare. Yet change at that level can feel cumbersome, complicated by competing priorities and may even be counterproductive, creating unintended new risks when attempting to close identified gaps. Large-scale improvements, while urgently needed, are often dishearteningly slow to bring into effect. Through all this, I've come to realise that in such a colossal and complex system as healthcare, it is all too easy to overlook the significant benefit that one small idea can have on patient safety. Sometimes the most impactful differences can be made by just a single individual. It has been said that the way to move a mountain is one stone at a time, and this is so true in the work being done to improve patient safety. If we look closely at the people in the system, we will find endless examples of individuals who are working tirelessly to move stones and make a difference. In keeping with the theme of this edition, I approached three clinicians that I worked with, or knew of, who to my mind were fitting examples of individuals making important differences in improving patient safety. I wanted to explore what they had in common, what that elusive quality might be that propels someone forward with work to bring about change that improves patients' lives. I could not look past Professor Joe Ibrahim, my colleague and friend, who first conceptualised the clinical communique as an individual who had an idea 20 years ago that has since contributed so much to patient safety. For an example of work during the COVID-19 pandemic that potentially saved many lives, I thought of Associate Professor Vivian Chen, a Sydney-based haematologist who was part of a collaborative team that saw an urgent need for a consensus guideline on the diagnosis and management of vaccine-induced immune thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. The recent admirable work of some of the emergency medicine colleagues Doctors Philip Ward and David Makaro in creating first aid videos for civilians in Ukraine was a clear example of where the future of patient safety lies, sharing lessons through social media in a way that has never been done before. I asked each of these individuals to answer three simple questions looking for a common thread that might shed light on why their efforts were so successful. Reflections on the past from Professor Joseph Ibrahim and the Clinical Communique. The communique's approach is highly innovative and remains unique in the world. Each issue of the clinical communique identifies key themes vital to improving patient safety using case studies of preventable deaths that occur in acute hospitals and community settings with senior expert commentaries to instruct clinicians on how to improve care. Results from a 2017 BMJ open publication found that one in two respondents, 53%, attributed changing their practice to the clinical communique, and three in five respondents, 62.4%, used the clinical communique for teaching. The clinical communique now has over 10,000 subscribers and an estimated 70,000 readers. In 2021, the Communique's website had approximately 40,000 hits and over 15,000 podcast streams, an increase of 52% from the release of the first podcast in 2020. Where did the idea come from? Lots of places. In the 1990s, we had medical board report cases, the Joint Commission had a sentinel alert about serious events, and Harvard had an insurance risk management newsletter. I spent January 2001 at a Harvard meeting with professors in the field of public health and saw how important it was to get information back to clinicians if something was reported. 
I also set up the safety and quality in healthcare unit at Monash University and was always hunting for cases I could use. I had a coroner's case from the mid-1990s about an ICC going into a patient's liver and was using that as teaching for undergraduates and clinicians. I was recruited by the then state coroner to set up the clinical liaison service with Dr. Adam O'Brien at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. We wanted to make better use of coronial data, so I travelled around Australia interviewing coroners, clinicians and health departments about what we should do. We learned that we needed something simple and quick that people would want to read. How did you make it happen? Time and commitment from a team who saw that it was one way, possibly the only way, to demystify the coroner and improve reporting by giving something back to clinicians. We needed the support of many to help write and revise cases, so we had medical, nursing, pathology and research staff all assisting to make sure we had it right. We knew we had to tell the story in much the same way as a long case presentation in medicine and focus on removing legal jargon. Adam had a publishing program at home so we could write it up and he would put it all together. What were your biggest challenges? Making sure neither family nor clinicians would be harmed by what we put out. Simplifying complex ideas and making it engaging for readers. It was also a challenge to sustain the effort, which was ad hoc at times, depending on our availability. People believed we were fully funded to do the work. The reality was most of the work was done in our free time, because the team believed in it. Lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic. From Associate Professor Vivian Chen and the VITT Guideline. VITT is triggered by an extreme immune system reaction and leads to low platelet counts and blood clotting in arteries and veins at unusual sites in the brain and abdomen. Mortality data from other countries where the AstraZeneca COVID-19 was being used prior to its introduction in Australia was high. Between 25% and 50% of those with VITT died in those first few months of vaccination. In the six months from the first Australian VITT case in April 2021 to October 2021, there were 148 cases of confirmed or probable VITT. Just eight of those cases were fatal, representing a significantly lower fatality rate, 5.4%, than seen overseas. Vivian organised and led the meetings to work on the VITT diagnosis and management guideline. She was not asked by government she took the initiative to bring clinicians, laboratory scientists and researchers together herself. She is the reason that there was a treatment protocol in time for the first patient in Australia diagnosed with VITT. Where did the idea come from? As thrombosis and hemostasis experts, many of us had been hearing from our international colleagues about this new syndrome of catastrophic clotting associated with the AZ vaccine, with early suggestions around a potential mechanism. Flowing on from this was possible diagnostics and interventions that might be helpful to reduce poor outcomes. My research group had been working on immune thrombosis and had developed a test that I thought could be adapted to diagnose VITT. AZ was just rolling out in Australia, so we knew we needed to act fast to manage the potential cases. How did you make it happen? I reached out around Australia and New Zealand to fellow experts in blood clots and bleeding, with representatives from each state and the ACT collaborating in online meetings. 
The aim was to get testing and clinical guidance available by the time the first patient presented. We decided we would get our advice out quickly and continually update based on experience. Thus, we used rapidly determined clinical criteria for investigation, agreed to centralization of testing, and provided online guidance with weekly updates on the Thrombosis and Hemostasis Society of Australia and New Zealand, a website as we knew that the advice would keep changing. We used a new testing form that could be assessed online to get the right diagnostic test samples to the right sites. We included clinical experts, research scientists, diagnostic laboratory experts, so that we had an integrated response. I initiated the work without being asked by the government, and after commencement, I received support from both New South Wales Health and New South Wales Health Pathology. Our systems organically developed with the public health departments in each state. Importantly, we proposed steps to recognise a low-risk group that could be reassured and treated via a normal pathway. The education outreach for the frontline staff seeing these patients was crucial. We developed a multidisciplinary communication group that was able to finesse the communique and help disseminate guidance, not just to haematologists, but to GPs, emergency physicians, intensivists, respiratory, stroke and gastroenterology specialists. What were your biggest challenges? The need to balance the messaging around recognition of this rare but life-threatening condition with the overarching need for COVID-19 mass vaccination at a time when we had the Delta outbreak and limited access to alternative vaccines. Designing not only a brand new testing system, but real-time updated diagnostic and management guidance for our clinical colleagues. These patients could be presenting anywhere and access to diagnostic testing and management guidance needed to be available to all. This was all done in our own time. We were working after hours and on weekends. Everyone I reached out to answered the call. We all knew how important it was. Directions for the future from Drs Philip Ward, David McEnroe and Civilian First Aid. Civilian First Aid is an innovative series of first aid training videos created by emergency trauma specialists and produced in collaboration with UK medical charities to help civilians save lives in the war in Ukraine. The videos are available in Ukrainian, Russian and English and demonstrate potentially life-saving first aid techniques for gunshot wounds, tourniquet application, penetrating injuries, eye injuries, the unconscious person and burns. The creators utilise social media to enable civilians in any conflict zones to view, share and download their simple tutorials. Where did the idea come from? Civilians are unfortunately in the firing line of conflicts and most haven't had first aid training, certainly not for war injuries. A friend and former colleague had been involved in the foundation of a charity called Street Doctors in the UK which teaches first aid skills to young people affected by violence. We felt that similarly simple and transferable techniques would have far-reaching applications on today's front lines in Ukraine and would be best achieved using the immediacy and shareability of social media. We also recognised that emergency physicians are uniquely equipped with these practical first aid skills and have daily experience of translating medical information for patients. How did you make it happen? The first steps involved identifying which clinical scenarios to focus on, somewhat guided by existing first aid literature. 
Next, we wrote the scripts, which were then peer-reviewed by senior trauma specialists in the UK. We also had to outline the video content scene by scene. A film and content production company was sourced who lent their expertise pro bono and the videos were filmed on location at the London Air Ambulance helipad. We then sourced narration from prominent British and Ukrainian TV presenters, creating the brand and started sharing. What were your biggest challenges? Working in areas outside of our comfort zone, getting the videos shared and creating social media traction, and utilising medical and non-medical networks to get the videos to where they needed. Sourcing the narrators took a long time. We were fortunate to have people on the team who weren't scared of making a few phone calls. Everyone involved in this project gave their time free of charge. Sharing the successes. It was not until I finished collating the invited responses that it dawned on me that I had essentially been searching for insights on safety successes. In other words, although I had not articulated it in such a way at the time, I was trying to learn through safety too. In healthcare, learning from adverse events, such as through coroner's findings, is an example of safety one. The notion of safety too is based on resilience engineering and aspires to overcome the paradox of learning from the absence of safety by bringing into focus situations where safety is present, that is, where things go well. In safety too, success is a consequence of ostensibly hidden acts and collective efforts to adapt to dynamic conditions and uncertainty. This occurs where individuals, teams or systems are able to demonstrate four resilience abilities to learn from past experience, to monitor the system's performance and changes in its environment, to anticipate potential developments, and to respond to actual changes. I was fascinated by what these individuals had written. I had found the common threads I was looking for, the secret to their successes per se, and unsurprisingly, the list resembled the resilience abilities that Safety 2 described. Joseph, Vivian, Phil and David, all anticipated a need in their system of work, looked at what had been done elsewhere, used what they had at their disposal, and set to work to create something new. Importantly, they collaborated with other individuals to utilise valuable expertise and experience. Perhaps the most striking commonality of all, however, was that they all committed to working after hours and often without funding at the outset because they believed so strongly in what they were doing to help save lives. Some of these individuals, like the experts in this edition, have defined and shifted mountains over a period of time. Others have come up against a new problem and created novel approaches to address it, the new mountaineers. In patient safety, it is the system that we need to look at and improve, but it will always be the resilience of people that show us the way. This edition of the Clinical Communique is dedicated to every single person who goes to work each day and strives to make a difference to a patient. We all know them. We all are them. Come so far, but still so far to go, from Dr Annie Molden, OAM. Whilst the release of the Institute of Medicine's report to Err is Human in 1999 had a pivotal role in focusing attention on the massive amount of inadvertent harm being caused to patients receiving healthcare, it was a decade earlier, in 1991, when paediatric surgeon Lucien Leap and his colleagues published the Harvard Medical Practice Study and detailed the extent of adverse events in several New York hospitals. 
aptly titled The Incidence of Adverse Events and Negligence in Hospitalised Patients, this was the first large study that actively looked at the extent of medical error and the resultant harm in healthcare. In the US alone, nearly 100,000 patients were dying each year due to medical error. We initially wondered whether the degree of harm in Australia was as significant. In 1989, anaesthetist Bill Runkerman and his colleagues formed the Australian Patient Safety Foundation, and in 1993, they published Errors, Incidents and Accidents in Anaesthetic Practice. The publication of the Quality in Australian Healthcare Study in 1995 removed any doubts and confirmed that adverse events were occurring in hospitals in Australia too, and at alarming rates. Nearly 35 years later, how far have we come? Patient safety is now a major priority. We have a national commission whose sole focus is the quality and safety of healthcare. Every hospital must undergo regular accreditation through them. Every hospital has a board quality subcommittee and a structure to support it with detailed quality key performance indicators and investigations into critical accidents and sentinel events. We have electronic medical records and e-prescribing and much more. As a result, no one would debate that many types of errors and the resultant harm have been reduced. Hospital-acquired infections, adverse medication events, wrong site surgery, to name a few. But too much harm is still occurring. Much of this is due to a healthcare system that is poorly structured, severely under-resourced, and more recently smashed by not only COVID-19, but by the pandemic response. However, too much is also due to poor communication, insufficient clinical accountability, or both. Poor communication is the major contributing factor in many sentinel events, either between treating clinicians or between clinicians and patients and their families. In paediatrics, parents being unable to attract attention to their deteriorating child continues to cause harm. Learning lessons from harm that has occurred is pivotal and a moral responsibility. Sharing those lessons is crucial. The clinical communique is the standout in presenting cases that have gone before the coroner's court in Australian jurisdictions, providing sufficient detail as to what happened and expert commentary as to why. Of note, however, these cases are in the public arena and as a result, confidentiality is not an issue. In many other instances, potential identification of the patient or of the clinicians involved precludes the story being told and the sharing of lessons learned. As a result, the same types of adverse events keep recurring. Open disclosure of an adverse event to the impacted patient and their family is now considered a duty of care. In a sentinel event investigation, the patient and their family are now expected to be interviewed as part of the process. These are recent and very important shifts in healthcare. There are increasing numbers of patients or their families describing their experiences in the public arena, but we need to find ways to share their stories much more broadly. Hearing these stories is very powerful and drives change in clinician behaviour. Finally, patients and their families must consistently be considered a critical part of the clinical team. For the vulnerable families for whom this is an almost impossible reality, we have a responsibility to actively facilitate it and ensure their voice is heard. Until we do, harm will continue to occur. About Dr Annie Molden, OAM. Annie is a general development and behavioural paediatrician and a self-described quality and safety activist. 
Having commenced working as a consultant in 1994, Annie has over 25 years of clinical experience as a paediatrician. She was awarded an Order of Australian Medal in 2011 for her contribution to paediatrics and to patient safety. Annie is the clinical lead, Victorian Paediatric Clinical Network, and the medical lead at the Quality and Safety at the Royal Children's Hospital, Victoria, Australia. Her previous roles included Director of Quality at RCH and Clinical Director, Innovation and Quality at Monash Health. Ensuring we don't fall short on safety. Reflections of a health service researcher and clinician. Associate Professor Carolyn Brand. Introduction. My recollections of discussing quality and safety issues in healthcare are divided into three phases of my career. The early phase in my career as a medical student, intern, registrar, trainee and junior consultant physician was in the 1980s and 1990s. I would attend clinical review and audit meetings. These were purely confined to a medical or surgical craft group review of cases that were presented as disease-based issues. Quality of care issues were raised more commonly as criticism of perceived errors made by individuals. These were a bit terrifying. This approach did not encourage open disclosure of adverse events. Even if one wanted to report an adverse event, there were not any well-developed organisational systems for reporting and responding to these incidents. In the middle phase of my career, while pursuing a Master of Public Health, I was shocked to discover the extent of adverse events occurring in the delivery of healthcare. This was documented in the landmark report of the Institute of Medicine to Eris Human, released November 1999. I began a steep learning curve. This phase involved learning the importance of a broader perspective, defining quality and safety, the role of teams, and the need to build safer systems with good governance and robust data systems. The latter phase of my career combined clinical practice and increasing involvement in health services research and evaluation. I focused on approaches to improving quality and safety of healthcare and improving models of care for people with chronic conditions. This culminated in becoming involved in hospital governance. There have been many substantial gains over the past four decades, but significant challenges remain. I have chosen to address two areas, clinical governance systems and use of data for quality and safety. Clinical governance systems. Contemporary healthcare stakeholders, managers, clinical and non-clinical staff, patients, families and carers and the broader community better understand the potential for incidents and errors within healthcare delivery. There is greater transparency in discussions of adverse outcomes by individual clinicians and hospitals associated with the open disclosure process. Clinical governance has improved in both the public and private hospital sector, although recent reports about deficiencies in residential aged care services indicate the need for specific focus on improving in these settings. Quality and safety frameworks have been implemented in all Australian jurisdictions and these are evaluated for accreditation status against the national standards. Whilst this has imposed a burden on healthcare organisations to provide adequate resources to ensure the standards are implemented and reviewed, the organisations take great pride in ensuring they meet the standards and that their activities do not simply represent a tick box mentality. At a clinical level, perhaps most pleasing has been the growth of ground-up clinical governance activities, whereby clinical department teams are developing craft group-specific quality and safety governance frameworks for reporting internally to hospital management. 
Such activities encourage clinical ownership and a proactive approach to clinical as well as financial governance. However, this development remains patchy, functioning well in areas where teamwork and good data systems naturally evolve, such as surgical and anaesthetic teams, intensive care and emergency medicine teams. The technical nature of these craft groups' work encourages standardization of processes and procedures. Within other craft groups, there is less focus on technical intervention. I have found that the maturity of clinical governance frameworks is more reliant upon the degree to which clinical leaders have been trained in the principles and practice of quality and safety, as well as leadership and management. For doctors, such training has not been routinely included in medical curricula. Interestingly, once doctors enter the workforce at a healthcare organisation, training is more readily available to non-medical staff who are likely to be full-time rather than sessional and for whom such training is valued for career advancement. I would like to see all members of clinical teams better trained in these areas in undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Use of data for quality and safety. There have been great improvements in the use of data for improving patient safety and understanding patient experience. There has been a growth in numbers of clinical registries which provide the highest quality data and a broader range of quality and safety outcomes are being measured. Data from repositories such as the Australian Orthopaedic Association National Joint Replacement Registry influences surgical behaviours as robust outcome data about specific prostheses is made available. Data from the Victorian Health Care Association Infection Surveillance System provides robust system-wide outcomes data on healthcare-associated infections, as well as integrated information about processes such as appropriate use of antibiotics to inform quality improvement. At a system and individual level, there is a standardised peer review process for reviewing mortality associated with surgical care in Victorian hospitals through the Victorian Audit of Surgical Mortality. Similar surgical mortality audits are performed in other Australian jurisdictions. Comparative clinical performance data is being published through the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and at jurisdictional levels, for instance the Victorian Agency for Health Information. There is also increased reporting of hospital outcomes to consumers. Public and private hospitals publish data about their own performance. However, there is considerable heterogeneity in the type and number of indicators used by organisations, as well as variability in ease of access to the information on their websites. This is an area for future improvement. Data issues remain a challenge. There is ongoing debate about appropriate metrics, their interpretation and publication, especially of comparative data. Hospitals, in the absence of purpose-specific quality and safety clinical registries, continue to rely on routinely collected administrative data, collected primarily for the purpose of funding models. A broad range of health process and outcome indicators are collated and presented to governance committees in public and private healthcare organisations. These results are dutifully reviewed at regular intervals. However, I have noted results may improve, i.e. lower complication rates, as data definitions and documentation in medical records are addressed and improved. This is not a bad thing, as data systems should continue to improve over time, but it highlights the basic flaw in the use of such data and the need for cautious interpretation of deviance in either direction. 
Further, deviance based on small numbers of events may be difficult to interpret, and greater attention to the frequency of reporting of incidents and statistical methods for assessing significant change is needed. More recently, I've seen greater engagement between hospital management and clinical teams to define craft group specific quality and safety indicators and to link data from craft group databases to administrative data systems. This will enhance clinical ownership and engagement in clinical governance, support clinical research and improve reporting to management about craft group and department performance. Where appropriate, such data sets should include clinical registry data. The future. The greatest challenge to improving quality and safety in healthcare relates to addressing system factors, amongst others, workforce issues and the ageing population. We have seen the effect of COVID-19 on our health workforce, which at times has been severely depleted in numbers. The ongoing impact associated with retirement of nurses from the system is yet to be fully understood. The reduced ability to open beds due to staffing shortages is likely to impact access to elective surgery. This creates complications due to delayed or deferred care. Other concerns are expressed about how changes necessitated to address the COVID-19 pandemic may have had inadvertent consequences such as increasing adverse events. Data pertaining to such events have not been fully investigated or published. Perhaps watch this space. At every governance meeting, we continue to discuss falls and fall-related injuries. We train, we huddle, we risk assess. Falls continue to occur. Our patients are getting older and frailer and frequently have cognitive impairment. We can't monitor every patient 24 hours per day. We identify risk, but in some wards, everyone is at risk. Our current model of care is inadequate to address the safety and quality needs for the very frail elderly. We need new models of thinking about solutions for such problems, possibly a conversation with experts from other sectors, maybe space scientists and bubble suits. The health system issues associated with an ageing population are well recognised. More needs to be done to improve the systems of care to reduce lives lost and the suffering of families and carers. About Associate Professor Carolyn Brand. Carolyn is a health services researcher and consultant rheumatologist with inpatient and outpatient experience in public and private healthcare sectors. Carolyn holds degrees in medicine at Monash University and arts at the University of Melbourne and a Master of Public Health at Monash University. Carolyn has a particular interest in designing, implementing and evaluating new models of care for people with chronic conditions and improving the quality and safety of healthcare. Carolyn was director of the Clinical Epidemiology and Health Services Evaluation Unit, later known as Melbourne Epicentre, between 2004 and 2010. Carolyn was president of the Victorian branch of the Australian Rheumatology Association between 2006 and 2007 and is a member of the Cabrini Patient Experience and Clinical Governance Committee. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast episode, part one of 20 Years of Patient Safety. Links to parts two and three can be found at our website, www.thecommunicase.com. Remember, the online print versions are also available at our website with hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that our case summary authors and our experts have recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.